learning for it today as we come to your uh, book, that we would uh, feast upon it, uh, that it would be the joy of our hearts to look into its pages and to see what it has for us. And then, Father, may our hearts be yielded to the leading of your Holy Spirit, and as he leads and directs, brings conviction to our hearts, I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately to it, and uh, that we would be able to glorify you in all of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Malachi, and we're going to look at a number of verses. Malachi is not a very long book. It's only four chapters long, <clears throat> and uh, it is the last, chronologically even, not just is it the last book in our Old Testament, but even chronologically, it is the last word of the Lord that is given uh, before a silent period of about 400 years that is only broken by John the Baptist when the Lord uh, is coming towards him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And uh, that is uh, when that 400 years of God's silence is broken. I understand that at this point, God has uh, been absolutely, I mean, there's no question, in what we've studied these last several months, God has certainly been long-suffering. Uh, with the northern kingdom of Israel and with the southern kingdom of Judah, He has given them opportunity time and time again to repent and to turn back to Him and to, uh, to fulfill their side of the covenant that He had made with them. If you'll remember uh, the covenant that He had made with Israel and reiterated with Israel, that He would be their God and, and that if they would follow Him and be obedient to Him, that He would be their God and they would be His people. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, of course, God always, always keeps His side of covenant, doesn't He? Uh, it's you and I as, as uh, humans that break uh, that covenant with the Lord. And, uh, and so, of course, the nation of Israel is in, in this case. And uh, He gives them opportunity time and time again. He brings judgment. He brings chastening. He uh, offers deliverance to them every, every once in a while. There are, are small patches of revival that take place that usually last uh, a short period of time as far as historically. Uh, some of them last, you know, 25, 30 years, which sound, sounds like a long time, but in the light of the grand scheme of things and uh, over hundreds of years, it's a fairly short period of time where uh, Israel is really uh, following after the Lord with all their hearts. And uh, we find something as we look at the overall, if we take a, a high-level overview of how God has dealt with Israel in the Old Testament, we can see a lot of parallels drawn between that and, and how God deals with you and I. We see a lot of parallels between how Israel is on again, off again, how they're hot and cold, uh, how sometimes they're excited about the things of the Lord and following after Him wholeheartedly, and other times they've drawn very uh, cold and callous to the things of the Lord. And we find a lot of parallels to our own lives in that way. And oftentimes we find ourselves oscillating the same way that Israel did. And, um, and so again, I think these are wonderful things to know and to understand. So we've gone through the survey of these books and understand some of the historic settings, uh, some of the things that Israel is doing and going through uh, have been a help to us. The prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, which we have just recently studied the last several weeks, um, have been in existence at, at the time of Malachi for a number of years. And the people of Judah have, have become um, questioning uh, of what, what, whether or not this is actually going to come to pass. Uh, they're very doubtful. They become very, very cynical 
they are uh, disillusioned by a lot of things, and, and their, their thought is, yeah, that's what God said, but we haven't seen it yet. And uh, by the way, uh, there, there are something to be learned from this. How often we know what God's Word says, and uh, our, our hardest thing sometimes to do is to wait on God to do what He says He's going to do. But rest assured, if He said He's going to do it, it's going to come to pass. And uh, the nation of Judah is just like you and I are. We get impatient. We want to get ahead of God. And uh, we don't sit and wait for Him to fulfill what He said He was going to do. And this is where they're at at this point in time. Because of the, the, the situation they're in, uh, there are some things that take place. Hold, uh, hold your place here in Malachi. Turn to, well, we'll stay in Malachi, but turn to chapter 3, if you will. And let's look in verse number 14, because uh, chapter 3 and uh, verse, let's actually we're going to read verse 13 and 14. Uh, they kind of summarizes the place where uh, Judah is during this particular time. In chapter uh, 3 and verse number 13, the Bible says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And basically they're saying, you know, what profit is it? We've done all this, and He has not done yet what He said He was going to do. And uh, so uh, they, they don't see that there's a big deal in what has happened here. Uh, because of their cynicism, their, their doubtfulness, their disillusionment, um, there were several things that happened in Judah that were, were crucial that God is dealing with through Malachi in His message. And uh, we're going to look a little bit at how He deals with that here in just a moment. But there are several things that uh, result from Judah's view of previous prophecies that God has given. Uh, the fact that they have not come to pass yet. They, there are several things that happened. First of all, uh, the their worship became external. Uh, it was very empty. It was it was ritualistic. Uh, they were going going through the motions. Uh, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Describe it. And uh, there was there was the outward appearance of it and the obedience of it as far as outwardly, but there was an emptiness of the heart. And as a result, their worship was was vain. It was vanity. Um, and so even though they were complying to it, uh, their worship was empty. And by the way, if we're not careful, we'll do that from time to time, don't we? Uh, there are times we just seem like God's not anywhere near us and that we're going through the motions of praying and reading our Bible and going to church. And if we're not careful, we'll allow our, our uh, view of God to diminish to the point where we feel like it's just kind of ritualistic, that we're just going through the motions. We're just doing what we're supposed to do, what's expected of us, and there's no, there's no real true worship from the heart. And so they had a, a lot of emptiness in their, uh, in their uh, ceremonial law that they were supposed to obey. They were going through with it, but there was no heart in the issue. And uh, then there was a, a cheating on their tithes and offerings. They were robbing God, and Malachi deals with that. They had held back. Uh, on the things that they were supposed to do under the law to care for uh, those that were poor, to care for those that were serving in the temple and in the tabernacle, 
And then there was a third tithe they were supposed to pay, and that was for them to go to a feast once a year, and then they were to spend it uh, for the, fam- the cost of the expense of going to that feast. There were three different tithes in the Old Testament, each of them 10%, uh, that they were supposed to be uh, tithing on. Uh, so that would have been 30% of their income, according to the Old Testament. And then there were to be offerings on top of that. And uh, they had robbed God in those areas and had not uh, fulfilled those. They were finding ways to um, justify uh, their not giving or their giving things in, a, in an unscrupulous way uh, that would not really cost them anything. And so uh, because of their disillusionment, because of, of the things they're learning, these things began to, to, to creep in. Then there, then there is an indifference to the moral and the ceremonial law of God, both of them. Uh, the people began to say, yeah, that's just, that Moses wrote that, that's for, that's for then. The society has changed, the world has changed. And here's the sad part of it is, not only did they change in these things, but they saw no problem with it. We just read here in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, that, that they look at it and they say it's no big deal. Uh, look with me again, if you will, uh, in Malachi 3, uh, 13, and think of, Think of this, this situation in light of this. So let's put it in context of where Judah is spiritually at this point. And let's reread verse 13 again, and you'll see it here. Uh, oh, I just flipped over too many pages. Here we go. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. In other words, the, the Judah is uh, speaking against the things of the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? <laughs> uh, in other words, they were saying, Lord, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. The Lord said, yes, you have. You've spoken against me. There are some things that are not right here. And the people are saying, what are you talking about? It's not that big of a deal. How often in our lives do we come to the Word of God and we see that we do not measure up and we say, well, it's not that big of a deal. You ever, you ever done that? I know I have. There's been times in my life, and I may not say it in those words, but by my actions, by my, my lack of desire to fix it, basically what I'm saying is it's not that big of a deal. That's a small thing. And this is the way that Judah was looking at their sin. They're, they're, they're uh, departing from the moral law of God, the, the, even the ceremonial, their, their worship, and the, the, the things they were supposed to do in the temple. And so, again, their, their view of God at this point is so low that they just really don't even care anymore. Uh, we're, we're defying the moral law of God. We're devi- defying the ceremonial law of God. And we really, it's not that big a deal. And, and that's their attitude. That's their mindset. Their priests, as a result of this, their priests, those that are the religious leaders, become very, very corrupt. And they uh, get to the place where they are spiritually insensitive. They, they, they have no conscience And it leads, you'll find if you'll take time to read chapter 3 and a little bit into chapter 4, it leads their priests, their religious leaders, to a place of the only reason they're doing what they're doing is because of greed. Um, They begin to to, uh, offer sacrifices that are not... Uh, that are not wholesome, they're not the right kind of sacrifices, and they're doing all of this so that they can get gain. And by the way, any time you begin to lose your view of God, uh, you watch the religious leaders who do so, and those that are involved in those circles, will begin to serve, not because they're uh, loving God with their hearts and because there's true worship going on there, but they'll begin serving God for the paycheck. 
and what's in it for them. They'll begin to write the books, and they'll begin to, to live in the mansions. They'll begin to drive the big cars, and they will preach a gospel that is defiled, that is corrupt, in order to get, get great gain. And uh, this is, again, a result of their view of God. Uh, God had said under Haggai and Zechariah, here's some things that are going to happen. And for years, it has not yet happened. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't going to still happen. It just means it hadn't happened yet. But Judah looks, looks poorly at God in this area, and their priests uh, start teaching corrupt things. They begin to uh, not be sensitive at all to spiritual matters, and they begin to serve simply for the gain that they can get, the, the material gain that they can get from it. And that's no different than the, the, the world we live in today. We still battle those same things in our churches, in our society as a whole. We find that this takes place. When people begin to discredit the moral law of God, when they begin to discredit their obedience to Scripture, and they say there's no big deal about this, it's not that big of a deal. I was watching, uh, I was watching a man who claimed to be a Christian, and claimed to love the Lord with all of his heart, and actually claimed to preach the gospel. But he was involved in the homosexual movement. And uh, he was explaining Scripture to a fellow who said it's not right according to Scripture. He was trying to, to justify his actions and say, well, this is something I've prayed about, and God has given me peace about it, so it must be right. And he discredited passages of Scripture that talked about God's uh, view of that type of a lifestyle being uh, 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 that which is uh, an abomination to Him, that which is foolish, that which is dishonoring. And uh, He rejected those passages of Scripture because of His view of God. It was tainted. It was slanted by His sin. And when He got to this place, his, His mindset was, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it is a big deal. One of the biggest problems we're facing in the world we're living in today are people, and I'm going to say, I'm going to include Christians in this, because we're guilty of it too. Sin has lost its sinfulness. And in a holy God's eyes, it is a big deal. It is something that we cannot and must not justify. And yet we live in those days, don't we? We live in days where we tend to justify. And, and, and by the way, uh, we can look at people that have the big sins... And I use air quotes for that. You know, the big ones. The ones we don't have. Those are the big ones. And we, we get upset because they are justifying these big sins. What about the ones we justify? Oh, Pastor, those are small ones, though. That's exactly where Judah is. We don't think it's a big deal. Those are, those are, those are minor. And yet they're justifying them. Why? Because their view of God has been diminished. And then they wonder, and they actually question why God is not giving blessings to them. And isn't that amazing? Uh, we get in our lives and we say, I just don't know why I'm having to go through these things. I just don't understand why God doesn't meet this need. could be our view of God is not right. It could be that we're justifying and saying, Lord, it's not a big deal that I don't measure up to the truth of Your Word. And there's no diligence, there's no fervency of heart to say, I want to do everything I can to bring my life in alignment with this book. And uh, it could be that. 
And certainly that was the case in Judah. So God uh, addresses them through Malachi, and he does so through a series of questions. Now, I'm going to give you the questions that God asks of, of Judah and answers for them that lead them to chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, to say, we don't think it's that big of a deal. But God asks them a series of questions that are very, very pointed, and he, he strikes the nerve uh, of the issue. And by the way, God always has a way of doing that, doesn't He? He has a way of putting the spotlight right on the thing that, that just, just gets to the point. And uh, He finds the problem. So, uh, in, in chapter 1, let's look in verses 2 through 5. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 5. And uh, it says this, God says this, He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? So the question that Judah asks is, and God tells him, He says, look, I, I love you. And Judah was saying, where have you loved us? We don't see that. Wow. How could somebody who had experienced the long suffering and the mercy of God for so long actually say such a thing? And yet they do. And uh, so it says, Ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Was, uh, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. In other words, he said, Look, you're the ones that I've been blessing, not the Edomites. They said, How do you love us? And God tells them, doesn't he? He answers the question for them. He shares with them the question that they've been, by their actions, really posing. He gets to the heart of the issue, and then he answers it for them. In verse 6 through chapter 2 and verse number 9, I'm not going to read the entire passage, because it's a rather lengthy passage, but they, they then ask this, How have we despised your name? God's name. And God once again answers that. And He shows them how they have despised His name. Now, again, the very fact that, that Judah is in this, this place where these questions have to be asked lends itself to the idea that they certainly do not have a proper view of God. They, they don't have their hearts in the right place. They've despised the name of God, and they did not even realize that they had done it. And so God says, look, you, you've, you've asked, where have we done this? How have we done this? And God gives them the answer in this passage. Then he asks a third question. And the third question was, uh, he said, you, you ask me, how have we profaned our covenant with you? How have we profaned this covenant? And God tells them exactly how they have profaned the covenant. And then he asks them, how have we wearied God? Boy, this is an interesting question. I want to stop on this one for a minute. He, they, they've said, how have we wearied God in chapter uh, 2 and verse 17 down through chapter 3 and verse number 6? That's, he's dealing with that question. How have we wearied God? Understand this, that when the expression, how have we wearied God, comes into our Bibles, we understand that this is not talking about physical weariness. 
God, God is not worn down and feels like He has to just walk away from it for a little bit. Um, I, was, I was listening to a fellow a while back. He was uh, trying to make light of it and fun of it. And he said, you know, women are much better at multitasking. You know, they can have a baby on one hip and be cooking supper and cleaning the house all at the same time. He said, men are not like that. Men don't multitask. He said, uh, he said men, you know, they, they're like, honey, can you watch the kids? I've got to make some toast. I just don't know how to do it. You know, and they're, they're kind of single-minded and one-track-minded. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll get this idea that, that God is, is somehow limited in His dealing with things. He's not physically worn out. There's, there's not a physical weariness. The weariness that is spoken of here is His weariness of patience and long-suffering. He's waited and waited and waited for Judah to return to him. He's offered over and over and over again through his prophets messages of warning. Repent and return to me. Repent and return to me. Get this thing right. And he's now, he's now tired of all of that. Not physically worn, not exhausted, not depleted in any way, but done with his long-suffering and done with his patience. By the way, we just got done studying Revelation. There's going to come a moment uh, in time where God removes His mercy, there is no more. And we're living, we are living in this time period, and we ought to be so grateful for it. We are living in a time of mercy and grace, and a time where God is prolonging His long-suffering with a, a people that has rejected and denied Him, that look and say, it's not that big a deal. What's the big deal about forsaking God and His law? We're living in that time period. We ought to be eternally grateful. We ought to thank the Lord every day for His continued mercy and long-suffering toward us. Because there's going to come a time where God's going to end that mercy. So God is not depleted here. When He asks this question, how have we wearied God? He's not speaking of the physical weariness as much as I've offered my opportunity for you to repent over and over and over and over again, and now I'm done. And this is where he's at. And so they ask that question. And then they say, where have we robbed God? We don't understand where, we, where we've robbed you, Lord. And God answers that question. He talks about their, their tithes and their offerings that they had robbed God in. And then they said, how have we spoken against God? In chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, how have we spoken against you? And once again, God answers that question for them. And uh, so again, there, there's some very probing questions that get to the issue that Judah is having in every one of these areas. They, they doubt God's love. They despise His name. They have disobeyed their side of the covenant. They have, they have continuously rejected God's wooing and calling for repentance even His warnings of judgment to come if they don't repent. They have exhausted that. They have robbed God in their tithes and offerings. They have spoken against God. And their response to all of that was what we read in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. They said, we, we just don't see. We don't see all this. Let's read that verse again because I want you to understand the heart of Judah. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. After all these questions, that's what he said. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? 
You ever feel that way? You ever get to that point in your life? What's, what's, why, why even try? Why continue to serve the Lord? Why, why should I go through all that I go through in the Christian life? You ever ask that question? That's what Judah was asking. And as a result of their, their loss of perception, they, they are very materialistic. They're empty in their worship. Uh, their priests have, have, have corrupted things, have become uh, men who serve simply out of greed. And yet, this is the overlying thing I want you to not miss out of this entire book. You look at that and you say, God's through with them. <laughs> no, He's not. The beauty of the book of Malachi is that in spite of all of that, God still loves them. And once again, through Malachi, offers to extend grace to any one of them that will humbly turn back to Him. Can we, can we ever overstate the grace and the long-suffering, the patience of God with a fallen race? Can we ever overstate His patience with us in our lives? How often we fail? How often we displease? And sometimes, in fact, most of the time, knowingly and of a free will we do those things. And yet, He continues to extend grace and to extend mercy. The whole purpose of the book of Malachi is not just to point out. Now, we've had some prophets that God said, I want you to point them out, and He never gives an opportunity for repentance. He said, it's, the judgment is coming. You've passed that point. We've had two different prophets in the Old Testament where that was the case. God was not calling them back. He was saying, you've done it. I've given you time. And now the judgment is coming. But with Malachi, with Malachi, he still extends an offer that if you will humbly repent and turn back, I will extend that grace again. Isn't that amazing? God, God is truly an amazing God. To love us that way and to be that patient and that kind and that willing to strive in His patience with us. And we should not at all take that as, a, as an incentive to continue in our sin. If anything, we ought to look at that and say, because God is this way, I don't want to displease Him. I don't want to do things that are going to grieve Him. I don't want to do things that are wrong against Him. And so many people look at the grace of God as the, the get-out-of-jail-free card to go and live their life the way they want to. That is never the intent of God's grace. The intent of God's grace is to give us the opportunity to, of our free will, come back to Him and to say, Lord, I'm giving You my will willingly. What, a, what an amazing thing. The book is divided mainly into three different sections. He deals with the privilege of the nation of Judah and what they've been uh, given, the blessings that he's given to them over the years. And then he deals with their corruption in chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 3, verse number 15. That's a large portion of the book of Malachi. He deals with the corruption uh, that is in uh, Judah, and he does so by the asking of those questions that we mentioned earlier. But at the very end, he renews and reiterates the promise that he has for them. In chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse number 6, which is the end of the book, uh, he reiterates that promise to be their God and to give them uh, the opportunity to repent and turn back to Him. What an amazing God that there is uh, in this thing. 
The author, of course, is Malachi. He's only mentioned one time, and that is in chapter 1 of verse 1. He's only mentioned one time in all of Scripture. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him. We don't know his lineage, uh, Jewish tradition, and that is not Scripture. It's just tradition from the Jewish line of things. And there are some historical, there is some historical value to some of the Jewish traditions because they're steeped in the history. So there could be some truth to this, but I just want you to know that this is just a tradition of the Jews, was that he was a member of what was known as the Great Synagogue, or the great, uh, the one that was in Jerusalem that was uh, utilized by so many and during the time of Christ would have been uh, where he was at when he was 13 years old and he left, uh, his mom and his dad left and he was there in the synagogue. It would have been there at the Great Synagogue uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he directs his people, uh, his message to the people that are plagued uh, with the wickedness of their priests and their practices. And um, there are several issues he deals with. He deals with uh, the fact that the nation of Judah was divorcing their wives for the purpose of marrying uh, foreign wives and strange women. Uh, and so they were uh, divorcing for that purpose. And they was, there was infidelity that was going on. Uh, in married life because of that. They wanted to marry foreign wives or have uh, strange women. And then there was a false worship. And then there was an arrogance in their sin. And these are four main messages that uh, are primarily dealt with uh, in the book of uh, Malachi. Uh, they'd become so sinful that God's words no longer impacted their conscience. And, uh, boy, if we're not careful, we can get to that place, can't we? Uh, the conscience can be seared. And uh, it's amazing to me, in just my lifetime, the number of Christian folks who think that some things are fine and, and are, are certainly uh, not sinful, that 50 years ago we would have looked at and said, that is sinful, that is wrong. Why? Because they have been so seared in their conscience, they have become so calloused in the convicting of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, that they no longer look at sin as being sin. Um, so after this, again, this is kind of God's last plea uh, with Judah. It gives them one final time. After this, God goes silent for 400 years. And we don't see, um, we don't see again uh, God coming to speak to His people until John the Baptist. Uh, the time of Malachi is during around the time of Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, those types of folks, but it is years later. The temple has at this point at least been rebuilt, and it has been rebuilt at least long enough for the practices in the temple to become mundane. Uh, they, they no longer, it's all external. There's no heart involved in it. So it's enough years out from things of uh, Nehemiah's time and Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra's time. It's far enough away from that that the temple has been rebuilt at this time, and the practice has been going on long enough that they've grown kind of callous to it. Um, he deals with some of the sins that Nehemiah deals with in his second return. Not the, not the time he came to rebuild the wall, but years later, Nehemiah comes back, if you'll remember, and he finds some sin going on, and he rebukes the leaders, and he rebukes the religious leaders and the governors uh, for this, and uh, kind of chastens them. And uh, he deals with those same things. Uh, which that took place uh, around 425 or so B.C., uh, Nehemiah's second return. So we know that it was somewhere in that range of time. Uh, he's dealing with the exact same sins, 
the practice of worship in the temple has been going on for some time now. So it kind of gives us a narrowed view of when it was, somewhere around 425 B.C., give or take probably 10 years either side of that. Um, and then we have 400 years of silence, and of course then John the Baptist comes on the scene. Uh, in the book of Malachi, uh, we do find uh, a prophecy of um, the messenger that was to come before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he prophesies about John. Uh, look with me, if you will, in chapter 3 and verse number 1, and we'll uh, probably end with this. I'll give you the, the key verses, and, and then we'll be done. Uh, look in chapter 3, verse number 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord... Uh, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And so this is a prophetic uh, verse that uh, points directly to the coming of John the Baptist, and then that the Lord would be uh, soon to follow that. And so again, we see a wonderful prophecy here. The key theme is an appeal to those that are backslidden in their sin. The key verses are chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3 and verse number 1. Chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3 and verse number 1. Those are uh, kind of give you a very good sense uh, of where uh, Judah is as far as spiritually. And then chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Let's look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 for a moment. The very last two uh, verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with the curse. And here he is dealing with not the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, gives a promise that he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers. There's going to be a restoration of Israel during that time period. And so we find again, in the midst of all of the warning and all of his condemning them for their sin, he still says, I love you, uh, I want you to return to me, and a promise of the future that he will once again restore them. Uh, the key chapter is chapter 3, chapter 3, and uh, that kind of ends our survey of the Old Testament. So uh, starting next Sunday, we'll, uh, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to start a new series till maybe January, so we may just have a few general Sunday school lessons here in the next few weeks. Um, and I'm praying about which series to start next, whether we'll continue in the New Testament. Uh, I do have another series I would like to do, and I've been getting some things ready for that and praying about it, and uh, pray that the Lord will guide my heart in that and to know uh, what what He has for us uh, in the Sunday School Hour going forward. Um, hope that these have been a help to you, uh, certainly knowing a little bit of the background, a little bit of the settings. Uh, when we read the verses, it kind of... Uh, helps them come alive to us. We understand why these things are being done. So I hope that's been a help to you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. And uh, then take time to fellowship. We'll have our next service here in about 12 minutes. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and more the teaching of it. And as we've taken some time to uh, study just an overview, some of the settings and some of the background and why some of these things were done that were written by these prophets. 